I'm also a recovering cynic. Yes, I know you're shocked that an engineer has some deeply embedded cynicism. Us engineers come by this stereotype naturally. Engineers are encouraged to be cynical by being rewarded for anticipating how human nature will attempt to compromise whatever it is that you are designing, building, and perfecting. It's in our DNA, it's in our DNA, it's trained into our thinking. The data is there to show us that there are patterns of behavior that tend to result in destruction, failures, and suboptimal performance. It's part of our shared experience in history, and this data has proven to be reliable. Oftentimes, engineers proclaim that iterations are needed, changes are required, and we often think that engineering perfection can be a result of correctly anticipating how humans, the world, and the laws of creation will conspire to keep your thing from operating optimally and then making adjustments accordingly. Ask an engineer about hope, and he probably won't really know what it is because hope is not part of an engineer's training, education, or discipline. Hope is generally a terrible plan when it comes to iterating towards some version of engineering perfection. You let your data be your guide, and you let it guide your thinking, and you make a plan to account for that data. That's how it works. Seriously, do you want the engineers of the world to make statements like, I hope this flies? I hope this doesn't break? I hope this isn't going to hurt someone? You don't, you don't want us saying that. Don't present a plan to management that states, I have no actual basis for any of my decisions. I just hope it works. Not a good plan. In many ways, being cynical is perfectly reasonable and right. You don't want to look foolish by just being hopeful when every data point and knowledge that we have says that this will break, humans will screw it up, selfish ambitions will emerge, and someone will get hurt by using this thing in some way different than what the chief of engineering design intended. You don't get to keep your job as an engineer by living on hope alone. So it's not all that uncommon for engineers to see all problems and failures as some sort of engineering problem that they've encountered before. Perhaps it's right to deduce that more cynicism was called for as to avoid failure. Certainly more hope isn't the solution. Culturally, we are trending in some seriously cynical territory, a level of cynicism that used to be present in engineers-only failure analysis meetings is now pretty much everywhere. In many ways, our cultural cynicism is a completely logical response to the broken world around us. Corruption on every level of government, our politicians throwing temper tantrums like toddlers, sexual abuse from every possible vocation, including clergy and school teachers, the persistence of suffering and hate, the persistence of abject hopeless poverty, the inclination of civilization to make the same mistakes over and over again. Insert any awful story here to this list if you'd like. If you look in our very own Bible, both Old and New Testaments, there's plenty of data to support a cynical worldview. In many ways, it highlights how we as people manage to screw everything up only for God to turn around and forgive and work with us faithfully every single time. From the very first page, we are thumbing our noses at God and people get hurt. Let's look at a few examples of many. Humans reject a personal community with God, then almost immediately Cain murders Abel. Joseph's family sells him into slavery. The Israelites are worshiping the golden calf literally moments after God said, as his first commandment to the rescued Israelites, 
you shall have no other gods before me. The brutality and murder in Gabeah in Judges 19. The brutality and moral shortcomings of the whole book are wrapped up in the final verse of Judges chapter 21. And and, uh, that verse is, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Even the man after God's own heart, David, managed to screw everything up by succumbing to lustful mortal desires. He then tries to cover it up with just some conspiracy and murder. No big deal. And has there ever been a darker, more cynical moment in history than Good Friday? Has there ever been a moment in history where cynicism seemed to be the most reasonable belief system? Mankind literally killed an innocent man with torture on a Roman cross who just happened to be part of God's complex identity. What a screw-up. We should have totally seen that coming. I would like to read an excerpt from a Washington Post opinion piece by Michael Gerson. I can't possibly put it better than him, so here's his work. It's a bit lengthy, but it's good. Government certainly comes off poorly, giving Jesus the bureaucratic shuffle with no one wanting to take responsibility until a weak leader gives in to the crowd in the name of keeping the peace. What is truth? Asked Pontius Pilate with a sneer typical of politics to this day. Professional men of religion do not appear in their best light. They are violently sectarian and judgmental and turn to the state to enforce their beliefs. Jesus was not brought down by atheism and anarchy. He was brought down by law and order allied with religion, which is always a deadly mix. The crowd does not acquit itself well, turning hostile and cruel as quickly as an internet mob, first putting palms beneath his feet, then thorns upon his brow. Even even friendship comes in for a beating. The men closest to Jesus slept while his enemies are fully awake. There is betrayal by a close, disgruntled associate. And then Peter's spastic violence and cowardly denials. The women, all the assorted Marys, come off far better in the narrative, but Jesus was essentially abandoned to to face his long, suffocating death alone. And for a moment, even God seems to fail, vanishing into a shocking silence. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Says Jesus in the words that many of his followers would want to erase from the Bible. How could the Son of God be subject to despair? G.K. Chesterton calls Christianity the only religion in which God seemed for an instant to be an atheist. Consider how the world appeared at the finish of Good Friday. It would have seemed that every source of order, justice, and comfort, politics, institutional religion, the community, friendship, had been discredited. It was the cynic's finest hour. And God himself seemed absent or unmoved, turning cynicism towards nihilism. Every ember of human hope was cold, and there was nothing that could be done about it. Then something happened. The cynics lost control of the narrative. There was an empty tomb, reports of angels and ghosts, and a bold, improbable claim that a man, a dead man, was alive again. Well, guess what? The cynics lost, death was defeated, and the God of hope came through once again like he has thousands, if not millions of times before and since. When Jesus walked out of the grave, the cynics lost forever. Let's look at how this triumphant victory was won. 
So now, please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5, verse 1. All right, so I'm reading the ESV version, so I'm just letting you know. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Martin Luther has been quoted as saying, in the whole Bible there is hardly another chapter which can equal this triumphant text. That's quite a statement from one of the church's greatest theologians. Let's see how this text delivers the victory. Up to this point in Romans chapters 1 through 4, Paul is explaining to the divided Roman church that the gospel is God's power to God's power to save people who trust in him and that the gospel reveals God's righteousness. God's righteousness is a powerful Old Testament word for God's character in that he one always does what is just and what is right and good. And two, it also means he is faithful to fulfill his promises. Paul is claiming that through Jesus has, uh, Paul is claiming that through Jesus, God has accomplished these things. Instead of declaring humanity guilty, Jesus came as Israel's Messiah to die on behalf of all people as a sacrifice for sins. And then he overcame it all by his resurrection from the dead. It's his new resurrection life that he makes available to others. Jesus became what we are so we might become what he is. So here in Romans 5, verse 1, Paul restates and summarizes how we are justified by faith in Christ and how this results in peace with God. We can receive this gift of peace and justification through faith, not by following some engineering flowchart titled, Achieving Leverage Over God by Effective Problem Solving. (laughs) Following on to verse 2, we can now celebrate and rejoice that we have been properly reconciled through Jesus and our relationship with our Father is on the mend. Paul is clearly using temple language here to describe how we have access to God's glory. This is temple language designed to invoke imagery of the veiled separation between us and and God as the result of sin. This has been removed, and this reconciliation and peace allows us into the holiest of holies, the inner room where God's awesome presence and glory rested on the mercy seat. This is all the result of grace and nothing else. Paul is trying to get us into the headspace where we are imagining being in the indescribable, awesome presence of the God of everything and how truly glorious that will be. That in and of itself should be enough for us especially since it's a free gift mediated by the Prince of Peace, Jesus. In this next part, I like to think that Paul is getting so excited while dictating verses 3 to 5 to ascribe that he is waving his arms and triumphantly throwing his fists into the air. Not only that, but wait, there's more. We don't have to worry about pain, suffering, 
and tribulations anymore since we've been reconciled and that God has kept his promises. He sees God's plans for us. His grand action in history has a purpose and so does your life. Paul lays out what I think is his critical path to the proper in Christ response to the realities of our broken world, marinating in suffering, pain, and evil. Suffering produces patience and endurance. Patience produces character and experience, and character with experience produces hope. Now, Paul isn't saying we should walk around celebrating and suffering and pain. What I think he's getting at here is that we should be recognizing that God is actively using the grim realities of this world to accomplish the ultimate reconciliation of heaven and earth. As N.T. Wright puts it, he sees a steady progression in which God uses our sufferings for the same purpose he gives us his own presence and love, to transform us into the truly human people we were meant to be. This is where verse 5 comes in. God's love has been generously poured deep into the center of our being so we can become new creation and work with him to establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. This has been accomplished through the work of the Holy Spirit given, given to us to fuel and power the hopeful Christian life in Christ as true image bearers of the true, one, and awesome God. As Paul reminds us, we should not be ashamed of our hope, because it is grounded in the power of God and the work of the Holy Spirit. The deeply cynical world will look at the hopeful Christian person saying, God will ultimately wipe away every single one of the tears with a look of confusion and sometimes ridicule. Well, don't let it bother you as God is righteous and comes through every single time. So I think it's time to clear up some semantics here. The way hope is presented here and elsewhere is not the same as Pollyanna-like optimism. Optimism optimism at its core is related to hope, but is as much of an attitude as anything else. It is often rooted in the efforts and competency of man, which is often a double-edged sword. If hope rooted in God's rescue plan is not a central character trait, optimism quickly yields to cynicism when things ultimately go wrong for one reason or another. I think that cynicism is fundamentally the result of a lack of patience. Cynicism is not compatible with hope, as that it requires patience and experience and character to have hope when times are tough. Cynicism is basically saying that God is not righteous, He doesn't have a plan, and he isn't going to come through on his promises. Or if he does all of these things on his own time instead of my own, that's not good enough. To quote the evangelist Stuart McAllister, writing to the Romans, the Apostle Paul reminded them that hope is real because it is anchored in the one who is able to carry it, sustain it, and fulfill it. History is moving to an end, and Christ offers a good end. Thus, the difference between optimism, which is short-term and easily overcome, and hope, which is eternal and anchored, is where they are rooted. One leans on human effort, the other rests in God and God's promises. Even the most cynical and talented engineers in ancient Rome could not have seen this solution. I mean, even the experts in the law rejected the hope that rightly comes with the announcement that God's kingdom is here now. As it turns out, the cynics lost control of the narrative when Jesus walked out of the grave. 
it turns out that God's data set is probably the one we should be analyzing. So what should we do? Well, my personal default is to collect the data, organize it, evaluate it, analyze it, and then act on it. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty hokey to think that an engineer would take, it and take a data-driven approach to figuring out what the most reasonable and logical reaction to God's love should be. But that's the wonderful thing about being a Jesus person. It's a historically verifiable and intellectually defensible position to hold, and hope is a key feature of being a Jesus person. It's not a bug. It's a feature. It's desirable. It's true freedom. So on one hand, we have the data set provided by the material and human experience. It tells us that we are fundamentally broken, fundamentally selfish, and fundamentally awful to one another. It is one of the most verifiable data sets in history. There is so much data, it's overwhelming, yet it's one of the most intellectually rejected data sets in the world for pretty much the entirety of history. We might fool ourselves into thinking that this time it will be different because we have a better education system. We have more prosperous society as a whole. We have more of the right people in charge. Unfortunately, sin will always rule over a man's heart, and the pattern won't change by man's efforts alone. Alternatively, we have God's promises, God's data. The data set points to a greater reality than the material world that we are in and provides a truly revolutionary vision of a unified heaven and earth. The best part about it is that God is always faithful and he will always come through. The culmination of his great rescue plan was when he stepped into history by becoming one of us and showing us the true path to reconciliation with the Father. What is ultimately frustrating about this data set is that we know that what we currently have is incomplete. We don't have the whole plan detailing why things have happened the way that they have. We don't have the full details on how God's sovereignty interacts with our ability to choose. But what we do have is grace and love provided to us by the death of Jesus on a Roman cross and was resurrected out of the grave by the Holy Spirit. The inconvenient truth is that some data just carries more weight. It just does. A dead man walking out of a grave to show us how to be truly human is the type of data point that really casts a long shadow over absolutely certain behaviors and outcomes that are rooted in the shallow and selfish actions of man. As a member of the community of Jesus people, this is a single thing that unifies us. The resurrection and the life that flows from it can only result in true Christian hope that God will always find a way to rescue his children. Our culture as a whole, marinated in cynicism, buys into an eschatology created by man, a rival eschatology to that of God's. By rival eschatology, I mean that when we buy into some man-made set of solutions that don't involve God's sovereignty and plan for wrapping up this rescue mission, it means that man's data set is the only relevant thing to consider when observing and interacting with this world. It tempts us to believe that just running the data again with a better model or algorithm will finally lead to a final solution. It compels us to buy the false choices presented to us by our politicians and both parties profiting from us viewing the other as the enemy that must be defeated so good can triumph over evil. It compels us to believe that we are only one engineering breakthrough away, one perfect government aid program away, one more access to education away, one big election result away. Compelling for sure, but we have that data set. We know how it computes. 
There are no new surprises coming from man acting alone without God. It even compels us to believe that there is no hope since God doesn't really care about us anyway, right? He doesn't love us. Go ahead, eat the fruit. You can be God too. The Jesus Storybook Bible frames this as the great lie. The lie that God doesn't love you. Like I said earlier, earlier ultimately cynicism is at its core. Of, is, it's a failure of patience on our part. As we see from this week's test, text, patience should be our proper response to pain and tribulations. It doesn't compel us to throw up our hands and say, that's it. I'm tired of waiting around for God to fix this when I want it fixed. What does that sound like to you? Does that sound a bit like making ourselves God? Look, I'm not saying the pain in the world isn't real, and I'm not saying the pain that we're all dealing with in some manner isn't just something to be ignored callously by saying, well, you know a better Christian would just put on a happy face right now. What I'm saying is that God does love us and will fix everything. He is our living hope, our new hope, our only hope. He is the God of the living and the God of hope. Again, I don't think Paul was calling for us to throw parties every time that something terrible happens, but what I think he's saying is that there is a purpose and plan for everything. God needs children with patience and character as his feet and hands in this present reality. We have the blessing of being those chosen agents of change to partner with God to help make new creation a reality. God's power to rescue us from this current state is unrivaled. The Holy Spirit pouring forth into us is the same power that created order from chaos. The Holy Spirit is also the same power that sustains creation itself. And we must not forget that this is the same power that makes dead people come alive again. True triumph is proclaiming with vigor that there ain't no grave that's going to hold this body down. As we saw in verse 1 from Romans 5, peace with God and reconciliation with the Father is only available through faith in Jesus, by faith alone, by grace alone. What a glorious offering for free, and there's nothing I can do to ever earn or deserve this sort of love. We are truly blessed to serve a God that craves our relationship and will do anything to win us back. It's truly humbling to think that the God of everything offers us a role in this rescue mission. We have been offered the opportunity of opportunities to partner with the infinite power of everything. To me, that can only result in hope, and it's the only logical option. That's hope I can believe in. That's change I can believe in. I struggle with the pollution of cynical patterns of thought on a daily, if not hourly, basis in my own life. I'm certainly not proud of the first things that get said silently in my mind. I'm also not proud of some of the things that make it through the filter that don't project a posture of kindness and hope. I pray that God's transformative power works in me to help fix what is broken so I can love more fully. Ultimately, it begins, it all begins with a resurrected man walking out of a grave that leads to a regenerated heart that results in a new creation for us now and in the future. I mean the inspiring vision of our collective resurrection resulting in New Jerusalem where heaven and earth is reunited with no more tears is absolutely astonishing. I don't know how we get there. I don't know the point of influenza. I don't know why humanity just can't stop using violence to coerce others into submission.
But what I do know is that God is faithful and Jesus is our living hope. I don't need to know the details. I just need to have patience that God will come through once again like he has done every single time. Now what would happen if the church, the worldwide body of believers, started modeling the everlasting hope given to us by our Lord and Savior Jesus? Could we in partnership with God build parts of the kingdom that will survive the marriage of heaven and earth? Could we overcome the cancerous cynicism destroying our world through toxic thinking and behaviors? Could we overcome the evil lie of this world that God doesn't love us by showing the world what commitment and service looks like? Can we show the world what a life looks like that is crucified to the cynical world so we can be resurrected with Christ and part of a new creation? Could it even be possible that cynics like me can come to see hope as the only true outcome of the best data set that we have? The answer is most certainly yes and amen. Let me close this in prayer. Father, thank you for your faithfulness, even though we don't deserve it. Thank you for your grace, even though we don't deserve that either. Help us live every moment in hope rooted in the reality of our resurrected Lord and Savior Jesus. Through the Holy Spirit, fuel our lives with resurrection power as we patiently await the renewal of your good creation. Amen.